0: Well, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 this morning. And this morning, I'm going to teach you how to walk on water, in case anybody hasn't done that yet. Um, You know, good news hardly uh, ever makes the headlines, but it did last week. And here's what Gallup came up with uh, as their headline. New high of 90% of Americans are satisfied with their personal life. They asserted that 9 in 10 Americans are satisfied with the way things are going in their life right now. Gallup has been doing this for about 40 years, and these numbers are the absolute highest that they've ever seen. Uh, When you drill down to the details of this study, it gets even more interesting, because they say that 2 in 3 Americans say, like 2 in 3 Americans say, they're not just satisfied, they're very satisfied with the way things are going in their personal life right now, that too is is a high. Now, yes, it did vary from subculture to subculture, but every single subculture reported that their level of satisfaction with the way things are going, the mood, the national mood is, is higher. Now, you know, when you read that and then you look at the news media today, you think, really? Like, sometimes you, you look at, at the media and you think, everything is in conflict. And you, dr- you go into your internet favorite internet news website and everything is all sorts of conflict and angst and pain and difficulty. Well, Gallup has been doing this for 40 years, and they started doing this when Jimmy Carter gave his famous malaise speech in 1979. I'm old enough so that I remember when that was given. And Jimmy Carter basically was staring at a terrible energy crisis, a terrible debt crisis, and he basically said, America, you got to get up and get on and have a good good attitude about it. And Gallup said, "Okay, so we're going to measure the national mood. They've done that for 40 years, and this is the highest it has ever been. Now, I don't know where you are on that scale this morning, but let's assume that you would score yourself like the Gallup respondents did, fairly high. That's a really good thing. Uh, in fact, Paul tells us that we're to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So if our American culture today reflects just a little bit of that, that's a thing to be very thankful for. It's a thing to rejoice in because the gospel... Paul says in Timothy, tends to run along lines of families, and when families feel that there is a good mood, it tends to be good for the kids and good for the Gospel. Uh, Not only that, but Jeremiah said, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. In other words, if the welfare of the city and the state and the nation are doing well, then the welfare of God's people does really well. So that's a good thing. And as followers of Jesus, we ought to look at the Gallup National Poll and say, if that's really true, that is a great place for us to be in as a nation. But there's a danger. And the danger is the danger that God pointed out to the Israelites back in Deuteronomy. God says to the Israelites, I'm going to bring you into this amazing land of promise. And you're going to get there, and you're going to find houses already stocked with stuff from Trader Joe's. You're going to find wells already dug by those good people at Lowe's. Uh, Obviously, I'm kidding. But, But God said, you're going to go into these cities, and they're going to be fully stocked, and he says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. You must fear him and serve him only. In good times that verse needs to be operative in our lives because it's so easy, so easy to slack off. And in Matthew chapter 14, it was going to be easy for the disciples to slack off, and they did slack off in a momentary good time. And so what Jesus does is he teaches them how to depend upon God in both the good times and the bad times, and the outcome of that teaching is an astonishing event where Peter learns to walk on water. And my contention is that Peter's literal walking on water is a challenge for us to do a metaphorical walk on water in the things that we face in our life. And I want to show you, I want to show you how, this, how this works. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is systematically training his disciples to take larger steps of faith. Baby steps of faith are good. Larger steps are better. Just like when you teach your child how to walk, you know, little steps are good, you celebrate those little steps, but when your child is 18 years old and he's still taking little steps, you think, okay, something's wrong. I need to train you to take progressively larger steps. And so Jesus gives a series of tests, and the first test happens at the feeding of the 5,000. So for many days now, Jesus and his disciples have been visiting the seaside cities, and his disciples have been ministering with power. And they're really excited about the power that they've been experiencing. Then they hear about a tragedy. John the Baptist has been killed, like tragically, senselessly, brutally killed. So they withdraw from all the success to a quiet place. They go to a place that is Called the, uh, it was called, back then, by the Greek name, heptapegnon. The Arabs couldn't figure out how to pronounce it, so they called it Tabga. Try saying that five times really fast. So they withdrew to a desolate place. They were by themselves to process the grief, but the crowds see the boat And so they go up on the hillside and the crowds followed Jesus on foot to the towns. And first there are hundreds, and then there are thousands, and then there are tens of thousands. And Jesus is going to feed the 5,000. I say tens of thousands because we're told that it was 5,000, not including the women and the children. There were a lot of people, a lot of people there. So now Jesus initiates the test. He's going to see if the, the disciples will depend upon him for their daily needs. And so he turns to Philip and says, Philip, where are we going to find enough bread for these people? And uh, Philip is incredulous. Like, he is from Bethsaida, which is the nearest big town, and it seems to Philip, like Jesus is saying, can we find a caterer maybe in Bethesda that could cater for 25,000 people, like, in a little while? Philip obviously is incredulous and, and acts a little bit cynically. Andrew does as well. Andrew says, well, you know, there's this guy that has got, you know, five loaves of bread and two fish, but what is that for such a big crowd? In other words, they don't depend upon Jesus for the daily needs that they have at that moment. So, um, Jesus Jesus has the people sit down on the grass, and now the story gets interesting because Jesus prays, and he begins to distribute the little loaves of barley cakes and the little pieces of fish, and he distributes, and more baskets are being delivered, and more fish is being delivered, and pretty soon, 25,000 people have been fed out of five loaves and two fishes. Now, imagine you're one of the disciples, and you're one of the servers, and you're delivering the baskets to clusters of families and going back and getting more and going... I mean, how long does it take to feed 5,000 people that way, hours probably. And the whole way the disciples realize we're living in the midst of this really big miracle. They're coming back from where they're high fiving each other. This is awesome. We are so, this is so amazing. Like, I wish this kind of miraculous experience would never end. This is so much fun. Then it's all over, and Jesus says, Go pick up the, the leftovers. They go from waiter to bus boys. Now they're busting all the tables, and guess how many baskets they end up with at the end? Twelve. Coincidence? No. Jesus wants to tell the disciples, trust me for your daily needs. Pray to me for your daily needs. I will provide for you. But you've got to get into a mode of trusting me. Um, of course, that's Discipleship 101, right? Because Discipleship 101 is, I trust God for my daily needs. That's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the whole point of Jesus' prayer, give us this day our daily bread. But that's easier said than done, right? We have to be trained to learn to think that way. They failed the first test, so now we go to the second test. And the second test is the storm on the sea. And uh, having been on the Sea of Galilee, I've always hoped that I would encounter a storm. I never have. It's always been nice and calm. <laughs> um, but the disciples are, gonna, are going, now going to encounter this second test, and to test them, Jesus tells them to go to the other side of the sea. Um, and notice what happens in verse 22. He made his disciples get into the boat. Made them. They didn't want to get into the boat. Why? They've had all this success in the cities around Galilee. They had all this success at the feeding of the 5,000. The people even want to make Jesus king. And the disciples want to bask in this wonderful success. We don't want to get in the boat. We want to enjoy the adrenaline rush of victory. But Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. The tense of the verb means, guys, guys, come on. we we got to get into the boat. There's a little bit of pushback on the disciples' part. And they uh, go off to the other side. So they get into the boat at Tabgah, and they're going to sail 4.5 miles to the seaside village, the city of Bethsaida. And so they start to put the sails up, and now Jesus goes up into the mountain, higher up into the mountain. He's at the top of not really a mountain, but a very high hill that overlooks the lake, and he is going to pray. What's he going to pray for? In context, he's going to pray for the disciples because the disciples are going to encounter a rip-roaring storm. So in your mind's eye, I want you to to think about what's, what's going on. Jesus up on the mountain, he's going to pray all night long. The disciples down on the sea, they're going to struggle all night long. And a full moon up in the sky. Full moon in the sky, Jesus on the mountain, disciples struggling in a storm. And Jesus is going to pray for his disciples. And in context, he's going to pray for them that they would pray to him for help in the storm. So what happens is, in order to sail this direction, uh, you've got to sail to the southeast, then go about in your ship and sail to the northeast. They're literally in the middle of the widest part of the lake when this massive storm descends upon them, and they're, They're quickly dousing the sails. They start rowing, and they're rowing for hour after hour after hour after hour. I can imagine Peter being the the coxswain, the the steersman at the back of the boat, yelling, stroke, stroke, stroke. And he's going up one wave and down the other. He's steering with all of his might. As hours go by, they're exhausted. Fatigue is setting in. The water is coming into the boat. Hypothermia is now setting in and Jesus is up there on the mountain he's praying praying literally all night long praying for 6 7 maybe nearly 8 hours and the disciples are struggling down there down there in the boat now what should the disciples have done while they're rowing hour after hour after hour what should they have done pray they should have prayed to Jesus at the feeding of the 5,000. They didn't do it. They should have prayed to Jesus when, at the storm on the sea, and they weren't doing it. And I wonder if they, they thought they could pray to him when he wasn't there. We, we know we can do that. We pray to Jesus all the time. Lord Jesus, please, please help me. Did they know they could do that? Jesus is training them to be able to do that on a regular, consistent, intelligent, faithful basis. So then when they are at the height of their exhaustion, it happens. The disciples are furiously rowing wave over wave. And there off in the distance, they see a spectral form on the water. And they think, what, what, what is this, like a hallucination? Wait, wait, what is this? They're so tired and exhausted and fatigued. Is it a ghost? And, uh, and they they They're terrified. Now, what, why does Jesus walk in the water? Sometimes we think about, what's what, that like a random miracle? What, what is he doing walking on the water? And why in Mark does he intend to, quote, unquote, pass them by? Why does he do that? Well, this takes us back to the Old Testament. You remember uh, Moses went through a body of water, right? Did Moses go through the top of the Red Sea or through the Red Sea? No, the Red Sea parted, and he walked through the Red, the Red Sea on dry ground. Well, Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is God. So Jesus walks on top of the water. The disciples are, are to remember Moses walked through the seabed. Jesus walks on water. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is God. And when it's said that he was intending to pass them by, that's clearly a reference to Exodus where, where God says he passed by Moses so that Moses would see his glory. So Jesus is passing by the disciples walking on the water, hoping that the disciples would cry out and say, Jesus, help us. But they default to their superstition. So Jesus now very intentionally affirms his deity. Immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. But what Jesus is really doing is he declaring his deity because this is how it, it's, it is in the In the Greek language, take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. So sandwiched between the command to take heart and not be afraid is a declaration of his deity. I am God. He's saying to the disciples, you can pray to me. Even if I'm not visibly present with you and you're in a storm, you can pray to me. The disciples still aren't picking this up. So now comes the third test. And the third test is Peter walking on the water. Now, in these three tests, Jesus is intentionally training his disciples to take steps of faith. So I want you to imagine the fishing vessel is is just pitching up and down on this wave-tossed sea. The seams of the fishing vessel are groaning and creaking. Water is seeping in. The guys are still furiously bailing out the water. They're rowing with all of their might, trying to avoid being swamped. The wind is screaming past them, and Peter yells, Lord, Lord, if it's, if it's really you, command me to come to you on the water. Remember, pitching storm loud, crazy, chaotic, bailing the water out, water coming at them furiously. He's got to yell to make himself heard. And Jesus says, come. And here's, here's an interesting little, little detail. Peter raises his leg across the gunwale of, of the boat, sits on the edge, and the text says that he literally jumped down from the side of the boat. Pitched himself down on the side of the boat. Now, look, if you're a fisherman and you do this fishing on a regular basis, you, you think you're gonna plunge into the sea, right? He didn't plunge into the sea. There's a firmness to the surface of the water now. And Peter is fixing his eyes on Jesus, the author and perfector of his faith, and he starts to take some steps. I, I would love to interview Peter to find out how this, what this was like. Was it like being on a, on a skateboard? Was it like you know, getting on a hovercraft? My grandchildren got a hovercraft, you know, one of those little hover things, and they took to it immediately. And then I saw my son-in-law like, like oh, I can't do this. What was it like to walk on the water? What, what an amazing, amazing experience. So he's walking, he's walking, he's taking more, more steps, more steps, more steps, more steps. And then he, he looks around and goes, what the heck am I doing? Probably looks around to see the boat. It's a long way away, and he begins to sink. But the way you read this, he doesn't, like, boom, plunge instantly in. It's like he's slowly sinking and, like, sinking in the quicksand. And now, finally, Peter gets the message. He prays. What does he say? Lord, save me. After three tests, Peter finally got the picture. Lord, Lord, save me. Finally prayed. So Jesus reaches out his hand, and with supernatural firmness, he lifts Peter up, and Peter and Jesus walk back to the boat, walking on water. And while they're walking back to the boat, Jesus says, Jesus says, "Uh, Why did you doubt, O you of little faith? Why'd you doubt? Why'd you doubt? You know, the answer to that, if it wasn't Jesus, the answer to that would be, uh, because it's a storm? <laughs> and because nobody walks on water? I mean, That's why I doubted. But why would Jesus say it that way? Jesus is saying, I- I'm inviting you to take steps of faith that are big and bold and require supernatural power. And as the story closes, we, three, we see three amazing miracles. Miracle number one, Peter and Jesus walk together back to the boat. Miracle number two, the moment they step into the ship, the moment the wind stops, the wind dies down instantaneously. I've been in, in some pretty bad storms, and the winds don't just instantly die down. It's like they slowly abate. This instantly died down, instant calm. It goes from storm to calm. In a split second, and then comes miracle number three. um, And miracle number three is that as they're worshiping Jesus, they instantly arrive to the other side. That's a nice little miracle because there was no wind, so they couldn't sail to their destination. And they have been rowing all night, exhausted by the storm, so they couldn't row to their destination. So Jesus empowered them to travel supernaturally to their destination. That little detail comes from the Gospel of John. So let's think about where we, where we are in the story. Jesus has a clear agenda. He wants his disciples, that includes you and me, to live in the supernatural presence and power of Jesus. That's got to be our regular, daily modus operandi. It's got to be the habit of our life. So when Jesus talks about living in his kingdom, presence, and power, when I talk about that from the word, I'm, that's what I'm talking about, living in a moment-by-moment, moment prayerful, supernatural relationship with, with the Lord. So Jesus engineers three tests for this to happen. Test number one, feeding of the 5,000, they didn't pray. Test number two, storm on the sea, they didn't pray. Test number three, Peter walking on water. Finally, Peter says, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And the supernatural hand of Jesus comes down, and he lifts Peter up. Now, what's the point of all this? How do we grow so that this... Focus is the, is the active, our focus is the act of reliance on God. It comes through training. So throughout your life, Jesus is going to engineer situations in which you're invited, sometimes forced. Remember, Jesus made them get into the boat. Sometimes you're forced to take fresh steps of faith. And his desire is that those steps would become progressively bolder and larger so that my steps of faith as a believer one year into my faith, they might be small, but five years, they're bigger. Ten years, they're even bigger. Fifteen years, they're even bigger. Twenty-five years, I'm taking really big, bold steps of faith. I will tell you, many believers don't get to that place. They, they go a long way into Christ, and they take shorter steps of faith because they, they're afraid of failure. They're afraid that something is going to make them look foolish. And Jesus', Jesus passion for our lives is that as we grow spiritually, we would take larger and riskier Steps of faith. And I'm talking to myself just like I'm talking to you. This is to be part of the way that we live our life. I want to unpack this idea just just for a moment. He wants us to do these things in the good times, right? At the Feeding of the 5,000, it was a good time, it was a time of success. Jesus wanted his disciples to depend upon him in good times. If Gallup is right that we're living in the midst of a great national mood, As followers of Jesus, we need to depend upon Jesus in the successful times. And it's really easy to get to the place where we slack off and what we're worried about is maintaining and protecting what God has provided, as opposed to taking fresh and new and bold and even risky steps of faith. Sometimes Jesus will lead us into the hard times, like he did with the storm on the sea, and we'll, we'll all encounter them And sometimes, it's actually Jesus' will to allow us to be in a storm. It was clearly Jesus' will to allow the disciples to be in the storm, because they weren't going to see his powerful deity unless they were in the storm and could see him as he manifested his presence. Sometimes it's God's will that we face a storm so that we can can grow. I've had enough experience in sailing that I know what it's like to to be sailing at a starboard tack, heading into the wind, and then trying to go about and sailing directly into the wind and not being able to get the bow on the other tack. And when when you're sailing directly into the wind, it is very frustrating. And in a big boat, I've actually turned the engine on and said, all right, I'm going to power through this with my my Yanmar engine because I don't want to be going backwards. One time I was on a a Hobie Cat, had no engine, and I was into the wind and I was going backwards. They were in the storm going backwards. And when when you're in that place, you think, okay, God, I need you. But it's, sometimes it's easy to say, I'm going to power up and do everything I can before I talk to God. And God wants us to talk to him soon. In the good times and the bad times, he wants us to depend upon him. And so what we see is we see t- three truths in this about Jesus in our storms. Number one, Jesus sees us in our storms. Remember the picture, Jesus on the mountain, disciples on the sea, full moon above. Jesus saw them in their struggle. And the first thing I want to say to you is that Jesus sees you in your struggle. When you're in the storm, he sees you. The second truth we see in this is that Jesus prays for you in your storm. You know, he was up there on the mountain praying for them in their storm. In the same way that Jesus, who is raised up in heavens, is seated at the right hand of God, and he, Hebrews eleven seven twenty five, 7, 25, he lives to make intercession for you. He prays for you in your storm. Romans 8, 34 He's at the right hand of God interceding for you in the midst of your storm. So he sees you, he prays for you, and the third truth is that we got to choose the right response in the serene times and the stormy times. Remember, their gut response in Matthew 14, 25 is, it's a ghost. Look, first century Israelites knew that resurrection was the right theological position about the afterlife, they knew that there was no such thing as a ghost. They knew this. First century Judaism taught this. But when the chips were down, they defaulted to superstition. Just like sometimes when the chips are down, we default to things to find relief, as opposed to praying to God in the midst of the storm. So let's think about, think about um, <clears throat> stormy, stormy times and what happens in stormy times. In stormy times, we have this choice. And the choice presents us with what I would call a walk-on-water moment. So let me, let me give you a walk-on-water moment that my mom had. I think I've told this story before, but my mom uh, last year had a stroke. I was on the phone with her when it happened. On the floor, my dad called 911. She got to the hospital within the hour. She got the medicine that she needed. And I asked my mom what she was going through when she was conscious of having the stroke and not being able to control her left side or her speech. And she said, over and over again, I was repeating Isaiah 41.10, Do not fear, for I'm with you. Now, my mom will tell many people, she's told me this, she tends to be an anxious person. Like, if there's something to be anxious about in a situation, she'll find that thing and be anxious about it. She said, in this situation of a, a life-altering stroke, I was riveted on Isaiah 41.10. She had memorized it, and she over and over again, even though she couldn't talk at the time, she was saying this over and over and over and over again. That was a walk-on-water moment. On the floor, she was praying it. In the ambulance, she was praying it. On the gurney, she was praying it. In the emergency room, she was praying it. In the hospital, she was praying it. And the first thing she said to me... What I called her and she could speak is Isaiah 41.10. Is what got me through this devastating stroke. What I'm saying to you is that there are times where you you will be in a situation where you're going to have to take a walk, a step out into the boat, onto the sea. It's going to be your metaphorical walk on water moment. And that walk on water moment is trusting God for something big, something that's impossible. It's taking a new step of faith. It's uncertain and risky. It's more than just for a moment, because you're going to have to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, while you're taking steps of faith toward the goal that he has for you. Everyone will have a walk-on-water moment. So my son son Jared had a walk-on-water moment. Um, And my son Jared fell in love with a college graduate he had student loan debt, she had student loan debt. Between the two of them, they had $72,000 in student loan debt. And Jared, in prayer one day, said, I, I feel like God wants me to pay this back in two years. Impossible. Not going to happen, humanly speaking. And in the course of him taking that step, series of steps of faith, God led him in a very unusual way to a particular businessman who said, I want to hire you, but I want you to start a business so that I'm hiring your business. So he did that. And pretty soon, Jared got to the point where he was paying $10,000 a month off on the student loan debt while living living at the poverty line in Seattle to make sure all this was paid off in two years. And that got paid off in two years. That was his walk-on-water moment. Then he goes to Africa starts learning Arabic and says, I don't, want to, I don't want to do this. I hate this. And his wife said, you know what? It's time to buckle down and do it. That was the second walk on water moment, And he's fluent now in the Deresia dialect of Arabic. So you think about this, and you think about Isaiah 41:13, where this could apply directly to Peter, And to us, in our walk-on-water moment, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. I mean, Peter could have said that. You know, like, like God held me up with his right hand. He walked me back to the boat. He was with me in strength and in power. Uh, These walk-on-water moments occur at the intersection of risk and grit. Risk and grit. Uh, This idea of the intersection of risk and grit. You know, risk is is you're doing something that might not turn out the way you expect. And grit is, I'm going to keep on doing this because I sense that God has called me to move in this direction. And that walk on water moment often occurs at the intersection of, what I would call risk and grit. Churches are sometimes thrust into this very place, the wow place, the walk on water place. And we realized we were at this place as a church as we approach our 25th anniversary that's coming up on September the 13th of this year. We've, we started September 10th, 1995, but our, our anniversary is Sunday, is gonna be September the 13th, 2020. And so we are approaching this time, and we realized we were at this walk on water moment where we realized our ministries were fuller and healthier. At the same time, you know, we knew that God was doing something a hunger that we take our vision for transformation and extend it into the next generation. I was running into, and other people here at Grace were running into, people that grew up here at Grace, and now they're raising up families. And In many cases, they were walking with the Lord, and grace had been a part of their their story. And we thought, "How, how can we take this passion we have for transformation and extend it into the next generation? And clearly, we realized that we needed a building to facilitate that passion, both for teens and for kids. And in some cases, what that would do is it would help us with existing adult ministries like Celebrate Recovery and other ones. And so uh, our walk-on-water moment as elders and as staff began to coalesce in the fall of last year. It came together in this six-week stewardship campaign transforming the next generation. And it has been a walk-on-water moment. Have there, been, have there been times when I have, I have fixed my eyes on Jesus and take my eyes off Jesus and go, what are, what are we doing? This is, this is big. Yes, there have been times where I've done that. And times where I've said, Lord, Lord, we cannot do this unless you supernaturally break through. And when Garrett announced, you know, that, you know, we, to to me, that, you know, we're up to $866,000, I thought, all right, Lord, this is fabulous. Thank you, Lord, for your incredible generosity so far in this process. That gave me the the perspective to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. And not just my eyes, but the elders, the staff, the stewardship campaign team, all of us who are involved with this. Because we know that this is the right thing to do to move ahead into the next generation. And it comes back to this core idea, throughout your life, Jesus will engineer situations in which you're invited to take fresh steps of faith. And he wants those steps to be progressively bolder. So, some takeaways. How does this apply to our church? So first of all, this is a morning of joyful praise. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you have already provided you know, close to $867,000. Thank you, Lord, for that. And so we're thankful for God's incredible generosity. It's a morning of praise. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to have the, the sermon like first and then worship in response to what God has done. And then um, second takeaway is if, you, if you've not made a commitment yet, we'd just love for you to prayerfully do this in the remaining moments of our worship. Maybe you fill part of it out when Dennis was talking and you fill the rest of it out in a little while. And then, you know, um, after you fill this out, we've got receptacles in the in, uh, at four different places. They're big uh, galvanized tubs. And you can fold it in half and stick it in the tub. And uh, you can do that um, on your your way out. And then the third takeaway is is share your story. Can you imagine Peter 25 years after that event? He's around a campfire, and there are younger believers. And these younger believers are saying, so Peter, what what was it like stepping out of the boat and walking on the water? And Peter tells them what it was like. And the younger believer's going, wow, wow. If you, a fisherman can do that, then imagine how much more me, a non-fisherman, can take big risks, big steps of faith. So, you know, when, when Dennis was talking about 23 years ago when we were at our Forward by Faith stewardship campaign in which this place was built, I announced at the time that a certain amount had been pledged and people just were like, wow, that's amazing. And we have a story to tell now about what God did through that event 25 years ago. My son has a story to tell about how God miraculously got them out of student loan debt. My daughter-in-law has a story about how her husband buckled down, learned Arabic, and now can get in a taxi and share the gospel with a taxi member, a taxi driver who is a committed, devoted, adherent to another faith. You know, what happens when you get on the water is you got a story to tell. And it's a story of power, but it's also a story of authenticity, right? Because in telling the story, Peter said, I did start to sink. That's authenticity. Well, you wouldn't anticipate that when you're taking risks of faith. You're not going to be 100% confident the whole time. There's going to be times where you you start to sink and you have to get your eyes back on Jesus. But those stories are great stories because they highlight the fact that God is the one who is firmly in control.